music scene. Subscribe now. Three CR would like to acknowledge the Kula Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am and today is Tuesday, the 1st of November 2022. My name is Fung and I will be guiding you through um, all the latest news and current affairs stories today. Um, And I'll also be playing a lot of music. So I hope you're ready for a great show. Coming up first this morning, we are going to be playing an excerpt from the forum organised by Fitzroy Legal Legal Service last week. You may have heard us talk about it on Tuesday breakfast last week. I attended the decarceration forum at the Wheeler Centre. And so first up, we're going to be hearing from some of the practitioners and service providers who help assist women who have been criminalised or are in the criminal system. After that, at 7.15, we are going to play another excerpt from the forum, but this time hearing from women with lived experience. So hearing from Nina, who we've had on the show before, Um, as well as Sarah, Jasmine and Jackie, who are all involved with Homes Not Prisons. At around 7.30, we are going to be replaying the um, interview that Thursday Breakfast had with Liz Crash about the flood wall that has protected Flemington Racecourse from the floodwaters and has diverted it away from the course and towards homes in the western suburbs of Nam, Melbourne. At 8 o'clock, we'll be speaking with Kristen Lee from the Coalition for the Protection of Race Horses about the perils of horse racing and saying nup to the cup. And finally, at 8.15, we'll be speaking with Kay Wenigal from Darabin Climate Action Now, who will be joining us to tell us about the community initiative to make electric vehicles more affordable through a bulk buying arrangement in the northern suburbs of Nam. So first up now, like I said, we will be playing for you um, uh, excerpt from a discussion evening organised by Fitzroy Legal Service about women's lived experience in decarceration and carceral resistance. This morning we're going to play for you two excerpts from the forum. Firstly, we're going to hear from the first panel. Uh, this panel featured um, 
Elena Campbell, who is Associate Director of Research Advocacy and Policy at the Centre for Innovative Justice at RMIT University. Um, Elena Pappas, who is Chief Executive Officer at the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. Lisa Abbott, who is Executive Manager, Social Impact and Growth at Task Force. Karen Fletcher, who is the Executive Officer at Flat Out. And Megan Pierce from Victorian Legal Aid. In this particular excerpt, um, Elena Campbell talks about the Women Transforming Justice Program and invites Karen from Flat Out to open the discussion by talking about the ways in which the system is currently failing women. Here's Elena. I am just going to talk about some of the kind of systemic components that we saw in that evaluation first. And that was just simply the fact that the needs of women uh, in contact with the criminal justice system um, are so kind of completely failed by the existing service system that it was very, very um, evident how women in contact with the criminal justice system will often fall through the gaps. So they're um, labelled as too complex. The siloed way of systems operating means that they, if they can't fit in with this particular um, service response. They are also not going to fit in with another particular service response. And we did some court observations as part of our evaluation. And one of the things that really stood out to us was a reflection by a very well-meaning magistrate who said in a bail application, well, it, but for women transforming justice, I would be reminding you today but I know that you have a support worker there who's going to walk alongside you. So that's the only reason that I feel that it's going to be safe to to, um, allow you to go back into the community. And that stood out for us because it sort of was an perhaps unintended concession that the correctional system is functioning as a proxy for a a properly operating social service system. So that's what we want to talk about first today. I'm going to throw to... Karen or Lisa. Karen, do you want to talk about one of the biggest factors um, that we're, we're, or areas in which we're failing women, and that is failure to deliver proper social housing? Thanks. Well, yeah, I also wanted to acknowledge uh, that we're here on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonarung peoples of the Kulin Nation and pay respects to elders past and present and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or other First Nations people here today. Um, I want to acknowledge the the resistance of First Nations people to the invasion and theft of their country and their homes, and I want to talk about homes, um, through their violent removal from country and home and family and their incarceration in the first network of specialised prisons for dispossessed people, which was the, I think we need to look back on as the genesis of the kind of criminal criminal injustice system that uh, we're coping with today. Um, I, got, I went down a rabbit hole this afternoon looking at the history of the incarceration of uh, First Nations people in Victoria. I, I'm, I'm quite familiar with the sort of history in Queensland coming from the Prisoners Legal Service and we have the infamous Palm Island which was a prison island for First Nations people who resisted uh, imprisonment in protection um, missions and um, Uh, stations in Queensland. Anybody who showed a bit of resistance was carted off to Palm Island. Uh, And, you know, it doesn't take much to find the same sort of pattern in Victoria and the six missions and reserves that uh, served in Victoria as uh, 
places of incarceration of dispossessed peoples in this state um, who were removed from their homes and taken to those places. Um, and today we still see the same dispossession, separation of families, incarceration and the commission of violence against First Nations people, families, communities. Uh, and uh, I guess I just wanted to express the hope that we're going to be able to delve a little bit deeper into the mechanisms by which that is continuing to be perpetrated in Victoria at the moment. It's, um, it's just really quite confronting looking at the detail of how those imprisonments worked in Victoria on the missions and in, in the um, reserves. The kinds of things that we still see uh, in terms of the children being separated from the adults forcibly, uh, the children being under particular uh, kinds of discipline, um, the youth detention issues that we're seeing in Dondale and Tasmania and Western Australia and here in Victoria, really it just, it, it just echoes through the, through the history of, what, of what, how it started. Um, so yes, that's, I guess that's the first thing to say. Also, I, I guess I should say, I'm in the um, Homes Not Prisons campaign and our elder, our, our inspiration and our um, uh, grounding for the campaign does come from our elder Vicky Roach, Aunty Vicky Roach, who these days lives up near Wollongong uh, in pretty poor health but still in incredible fighting spirit. And she actually wrote a speech for a rally that we had outside the parliament on Friday afternoon. Uh, and I've got it with me, so if it's appropriate, I'll um, quote a little bit from her about housing. I might just actually start with what she says about housing as a way of sort of kicking things off. Yeah. I'm also a little bit nervous because um, I'm not usually nervous in these things, but um, after all these years of being locked down, I just, it's just weird. Anyway. <laughs> this is Aunty Vicky on housing. Getting, I should say, Arnie Vicky did quite a few years at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre here in Victoria, uh, and she also did short stints in a number of other um, prisons around Australia, including in New South Wales, but the biggest stint she did was here at, at, at DPFC. But she says, getting housing made a big difference for me. I got a job after I got housing. But you can't get started on anything. Your health, safety, well-being, nothing without a house, a home, a home base. Without permanent, secure, affordable housing, Aboriginal women become so enmeshed in the criminal justice system because they're in and out on a regular basis for the rest of their lives. We're the revolving door women. We often serve relatively short sentences, but even so we lose everything we have on the outside. All our personal possessions, clothes, photos and other sentimental mementos, our accommodation and even our children. We have to start from scratch every time over and over again, and with mind-numbing consistency. We have to maintain the fight to either keep or have the children, keep or have our children return to us. And Auntie Vicky was stolen from her mother, her mother was stolen from her mother, and Auntie Vicky lost her son um, th uh, through child removal as well. Um, so these words are spoken from, from great experience. And I should also say, I think, that Aunty Vicky was um, a peer support worker at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre on a few occasions when um, Veronica, Aunty Veronica Nelson, who died in custody a couple of years ago at DPFC and whose inquest is underway at the moment, um, was there and she observed that Veronica was one of the women that she has called revolving door women in and out of um, DPFC for short periods. Uh, for a very long time and uh, suffering from housing instability 
um, and all the other things that see people go in and out in a revolving door into prison. Um, so yeah, I, I did have a couple of slides, but I'll say what they say, which is essentially, if you have a look at what's happening in Victoria, we've got an escalation of the kind of injustice that has been happening for women and particularly Aboriginal women for decades. But it's escalating in the last five to ten years. And if you have a look at the graphs of the uh, number of women that are going in on short sentences, so I'm talking about a week, I'm sorry, not on sentences at all, for short periods, for a week, two weeks, three weeks, it is going from negligible to off the scale. In just in the last few years, and others are going to talk about the reasons for that in terms of bail laws, but uh, this problem of, of people not having any way of breaking that cycle by finding a safe place to live is a big part of that story. And even if we do improve bail, uh, you know, people released on bail still won't have anywhere to go because we've got a housing crisis in this state. You can't find private rentals. We've, at Flat Out, we're, we're a service that supports women coming out of prison. We've, I've had a worker at Flat Out literally apply for 200 private rentals for somebody trying to find somebody some, somewhere to, to live because there is absolutely no chance of public housing with 100,000 family individuals on the waiting list and a, and a waiting time of over 10 years um, and the crunch in the, private sec in the private rental sector literally means there is no housing um, and uh, this is, you know, you talked about evidence, yes, the criminal legal system is just so uh, not evidence-based but it isn't as, as though there isn't any evidence and I want to congratulate, I'm not a researcher, I'm not an academic, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, a lot about the academic exercise, but I want to thank people who do that because they have produced mountains of evidence that what keeps people out of prison is housing. And the people who are coming out of prison, like Arnie Vicky and others, have been telling us for decades that the thing that will give them the best chance of staying out of prison is housing. And yet we're still asking, oh, I wonder what people with lived experience think. They've been telling us for decades. Academics have been telling us for decades. The thing that works is housing, and it needs to be housing first. We've got the exact opposite in Victoria, where public housing under the uh, Residential Tenancies Act literally excludes people who, use, who are using drugs. That, that is a, a reason under the Act for the eviction of people from public housing. So the absolute opposite of a housing first approach, which is that you get housed first, and then you can have the opportunity to deal with the trauma and the self-medication that goes with the trauma. Thanks, Karen, because I think that's a beautiful segue into recognising that <coughs> women in contact with the criminal justice system are there because they have particular needs and particular experiences, most of which stem completely from trauma. Um, but we have a system that doesn't understand that or sees, sees the... Um, the manifestation, whether it's substance abuse as the issue rather than the trauma, which was the cause in the first place, and doesn't particularly doesn't have a gendered lens on that, understanding that particularly women are uh, self-medicating, as, as you mentioned, um, or other things that are, are driving them into, the, into contact with the criminal justice system in that way. That was Karen Fletcher from Flat Out talking to... Um, the audience from last week's uh, decarceration forum at the Wheeler Centre about the need for safe and secure housing for women who have been um, 
in and out of the criminal justice system. Um, we'll be playing more from that forum event just right after this next song. Um, we are going to play a track for you now. It is Sunshine on a Rainy Day by Christine Anu.
Australia's most iconic bike riding holiday, the Great Vic Bike Ride, is on from Saturday 26th of November to Sunday 4th of December. This rolling bike festival will have you pedalling along the beautiful Great Ocean Road, through the Otways and Golden Plains. Tickets include all meals, a camping spot, luggage transfers, daily entertainment and more. Sign up at www.greatvic.com.au Use promo code 3CR to get 10% off. Great Vic Bike Ride, a 3CR supporter. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, 8.55am, or maybe you're listening to us live online at www.3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. We are now going to play for you an excerpt from the second panel discussion that took place at the Wheeler Centre last week. This panel was moderated by Nina Story from Homes Not Prisons and featured Jackie Bampton uh, from Women Transforming Justice, Sarah Stilianos from Homes Not Prisons and Women Transforming Justice, as well as Jasmine Bazani from Homes Not Prisons and who has also been working on the Bendio Street documentary. In this part of the discussion, Sarah speaks to us about Victoria's broken bail laws as well as the community services and grassroots action that are needed to keep women out of the criminal system. We've touched on, like, you know, not being able to access supports in community then leads to a pipeline to prison. Um, and I think in particular, like, not having our mental health, homelessness and AOD um, and being people of colour is a direct cause to be targeted by police and then end up in the justice system. Um, and, you know, I think that in, in certain circumstances, police's... Uh, prisons are almost seen as a solution to these problems. So like rather than um, having your AOD issues addressed, you get thrown into prison as a detox facility. Um, you know, rather than getting support for your mental health or your housing needs, you just get placed into prison. Um, and I think that that's, um, you know, a, a question for Sarah, what sorts of um, resources would you like to see available in community to prevent women from being incarcerated? And what do we need in our communities at the grassroots to make sure that no one else gets locked up? Um, thanks for that lead way into that question, Nines. Um, I feel like, you know, it's already been touched on with the first panel. Um, you know, Karen touched on it as well around, you know, the lack of housing. You know, it's actually really ridiculous to have all these housing services and, you know, try to say, you know, you know they're like known to have or to be housing services and to meant to be having these resources available to people but they don't have them you know so you know you can't send people to somewhere you're sending them to a dead end you know and I feel like um you know housing is predominantly crucial and pretty much number one resource community resource um public housing housing that is you know you're not at risk of becoming having recurring homelessness you know you're not at risk because you're in a domestic violent relationship, you know, the person who is in that house has that house in their name and they can't lose that housing, you know, but but that what comes with that as well, we can't isolate people. We need to have community. We need to have people around us supporting us. We need to have support around, you know, regardless of whether people want to abstain from substances or whether, whether they want to use, but, 
you know, reduce the harm. You know, we need to be able to provide support for that. We need to remove consequences to absolutely every single aspect of every single like supportive factor. Like whenever you go out to try to get support, there's a consequence attached. If you're not following something, you're not conforming to a certain policy or certain whatever law regime, whatever it is out there. You know, it, there's always consequences, which puts people again in places of fear, um, in places of um, isolation and, and putting people more and more at harm of trauma and abuse. You know, and I think what needs to really be at a grassroots level is community, you know, community unity, right? And I feel like, um, you know, that's really at the forefront of really having thriving communities, right? Because when you've got connection, you've got meaning and purpose, you've got um, resources like food, you know, safe homes, safe housing, you've got, um, you know, loved ones around you, like whether they're friends, whether they're your children, your family, you know, whoever those people are around you, you know, you've got services that are there to support you and willing to walk alongside you, not pull you over here, push you over there and tell you, you know, you need to do this, otherwise this is the consequence, you know, having people actually there with you, you know, it would remove the disadvantage almost immediately, you know, and I think that's what needs to happen, right, because we live in a capitalist society and this capitalist society is making people go nowhere. We're all falling down through the cracks and we're all living really, really struggling, you know, financially to make ends meet, paying predominantly all our money on, on rent and, you know, now petrol and whatever, everything pretty much the cost of living is, is everything that, you know, um, you know, we're, we're trying to pay for and trying to um, get by in this world is, you know, um, really, really challenging because we can't, like from my experience, you know, I've struggled with poverty for my whole entire life. You know, I'm probably in a better position today than I've ever been because I've actually got employment, which I'm blessed to have, right? But before that, um, you know, the struggle was real, you know, the amount of money that I was paying for rent was all the Centrelink money that I was getting, right? And then it'll leave me with $60 a fortnight. What am I supposed to do with that, you know? And then when people are really struggling or they've got unresolved, you know, mental health challenges, they've got underlying trauma that's never been addressed, they're constantly reliving, you know, the same struggle, the same survival um, lifestyle, you know, because they're trying to get through day-to-day -day life. They're using substances because, well, it's a way to cope around how to get away from yourself because you're not happy with yourself, right? So what are you going to do? You're going to demolish yourself really, right? Because you're already struggling in a society that's already literally feels like it's hating on you and you can't get out, you know? So, you know, the substances aren't the issue. And I'll always go back to the issue of the war on the drugs is the issue, not, you know, the substance use Right. It's because there's a laws around that, that then they're criminalised, which is what's causing, you know, the issues around that. What needs to be looked at is the underlying stuff that's living there and that follows the person even when they're not using substances. Right. So I just feel like, sorry, I'm going on a tangent. And again, I could just waffle on too. But like um, 100%, I feel like it all starts with community, unity and having the resources available and not, you know, having the actual infrastructure like of housing having material aid having things available and accessible to to people and their children and and yeah and and removing the consequences consequences need to be abolished
Go on. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. I love that community and unity. And, you know, I can't echo enough that, like, when we engage with services, there are huge consequences. So we just either self-police and don't tell our whole story because it's detrimental to our engagements and the supports that we receive, or we just don't engage. And that then brings us further and further into the shadows and isolates us from community and we don't belong and we're left to fend for ourselves, um, which is really detrimental. And then like only once we start getting a little bit like, you know, it's that classic case of it's not what you know, it's who you know. And then if somebody believes in you and gives you the time and the space and, you know, just that little bit of support and you can start building on that, then that's when, um, you know, things start to change for criminalised women and the baseline is housing. And like, you know, we're coming up to an election now, so I strongly encourage you to put your vote in for people, for politicians that are supporting community and not funding police and not funding prisons because so much money is getting pumped into those areas and they're detrimental to me, to you and to our communities. Um, so I've also got a question about the Victorian bail laws. Um, as we heard the first panel speak, that it's had a direct um, impact to criminalise women. Um, and I just wanted to know your views on the bail laws. Well, you want to know my views. Um, I reckon 100% that that is the most um, traumatic policy-driven thing that I think that I have actually ever seen or heard. That's literally just put the red tape there to make sure that every single person who fronts uh, the criminal legal um, system and fronts court is then, and the police, is then pretty much handballed straight. When you go to the police, you handboard straight to the court system and then you put, you put into jail, right? And I think that is not okay. Like what, what kind of policy or what kind of person because of a a man who killed six people by drive by driving through Burke Street and doing what he did, right? Then ends up damaging the lives of so many more people because of the fact that we cannot um, show exceptional circumstances to get bail. You know, I can't say that. You know, my homelessness and my children and you know all these different factors that are, you know, predominantly you know, where there should be support around, you know, isn't enough to say, no, you shouldn't be incarcerated. It's pretty much, no, these are the reasons why you're getting incarcerated. You know, so like, it's like, because you're homeless, you're going to jail. <laughs> you know, these are things like, it's ridiculous. And I think, um, you know, that many women and the ripple effect that that has on the people that around them, you know, um, these bail laws have had, you know, um, as was said before about, you know, somebody... Um, stealing ice cream or something like that like come on is this a society that we're living in is this the bullshit society that we have you know like how actually sad is that you know when people are going to that extreme to get ice cream or to get certain things there's obviously uh underlying reasons why that's happening predominantly financial hardship right and somebody's hungry and somebody likes ice cream right you know and that's why is that got to be a crime and somebody's got to go to prison for that, you know? And I think, um, yeah, I think the bail laws are absolutely like shocking and I just don't understand why we live in, have this system that actually thinks that it's okay to do what it's doing and thinks that prisons are okay because prisons are 
a traumatic institution that is designed to really continue to um, exacerbate further control, abuse, harm, and exacerbate the already underlying traumas that, you know, most women have already endured in their life. You know, um, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't not re rehabilitate. It does not, um, you know, it is not a place for, for detox. It is not a place for, it's not a home. You know, like we can't lock people up and say that this is addressing any of these underlying issues because it's not it's just band-aiding it and i really think that um with the bail or like the braille um laws i really think it's just a poor excuse to keep the prison industrial complex um going so it's bullshit it's killing people and you know families and children and, and you know women and and also men you know lives are and youth you know um lives are being destroyed um and it's not okay it's a monster of a system you just heard from Sara Stilianos from Homes Not Prisons and Women Transforming Justice who was speaking to um, Nina's story about the need for actual community services um, to ensure that women who have been through the criminal system are safe and secure um, and talking about the fact that prison is not a solution for the um, systemic um, and societal issues that plague a lot of people um, in, in this country. We'll be right back after this short message. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. Welcome back to 3CR. We just heard from uh, the Fitzroy Legal Centre's decarceration forum that occurred last week. The entire discussion evening was recorded and if you'd like to watch the both panels in full, um, please visit our show notes later this morning to access the link. We thought it would be timely now to revisit a discussion that Thursday Breakfast had with Liz Crash about the flood wall that was built around Flemington Racecourse that diverted floodwaters away from the racecourse and towards homes in the western suburbs of Nam. Here is Priya from Thursday Breakfast. And we're back on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined by Footscray local historian Liz Crash to speak with us about urban planning and the unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events, which left homes and suburbs, including Maribyrnong and Flemington, inundated while the Flemington racetrack stayed conspicuously dry. Liz, thanks for joining us this morning. All right, happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, it is a pleasure to have you on with your knowledge of the area, but also I really appreciate the analysis that you bring to this issue because when we think about uh, the way that the flooding events have sort of happened, and I guess, you know, every time we have these kinds of flooding events um, where we have to think about it in terms of being on stolen land that has been developed in particular ways with, you know, successive planning decisions over time uh, so that when we're looking at the way that river systems work um, and the way that these flooding events occur, there's this sort of much deeper history to events like last week's. Absolutely. And it's 
everybody's having a go at the Victorian Racing Club, and absolutely, it is deserved. Right? They've made no friends. Um, I think that um, look, if anybody is looking for a job as a media advisor, I reckon they should approach the VRC because, like, their approach was just to go onto the news and say, "Oh, well, we're entitled to do this." Um, Kensington residents are furious, but it's the whole river system that's been developed um, and has been changed and has been kind of gutted, um, yet by really successive waves of settlement. Um, and I think what this is really about is, yeah, just disrespect for river systems and wetlands um, and mm. floodplains. So yeah. the whole, like... Um, area of like Melbourne was pre-colonisation was kind of a, a seasonal river delta and like network of wetlands. Um, there were many, many, many of the areas that are now built up and that are now experienced flooding um, yeah, were not consistently dry land prior to European settlement and the flood claim that's now the Flemington race is only one of those. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the um, there's been this sort of interesting, um, you know, like, I don't know, interesting is a weird way to put it. It's sort of the the like hubris of colonial development to be like, well, you know, we want to build here. Um, You know, this is prime real estate that we're going to take up. And um there being like, you know, planning decisions that don't take into consideration the fact that rivers breach their banks sometimes. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm wondering um, if you can maybe talk a little bit about the the purpose of maintaining a floodplain rather than building all the way up to the riverbanks and, you know, why those areas exist in the first place. Absolutely. So um, <laughs> Melbourne is flat, right, pretty much, like especially in the kind of inner areas near the bay. Um and what that means is that when rivers like the Maribyrnong do burst their banks, um, that what you get is a very, very wide flooded area. Now, it's not very deep, right? Um, it's floods that, like, the Maribyrnong doesn't burst its bank very often, mm-hmm. but when it does, it creates a very, very shallow flood for a very around a very wide area. So it might seem like, ah, oh, there's a lot of land that is nice and flat, that's like a long way back from the river in many cases. And I like it's 20, 50, 100 metres back. Oh, that seems fine. Those are seasonal floodplains. Um, And, uh, you know, like they are seasonal floodplains that historically haven't been flooded that often, right? Maybe once every 20 years or once every 100 years with floods of this scale. Um, I think that the last flood of this kind of magnitude was in the 70s. And then before that, um, the last flood that magnitude was in the 30s. But obviously these are becoming more common with climate change, right? Um, and that, I think, is why the VSC built that flood wall. Like, I don't think that they were just worried about, like, a once-in-every-hundred-year event. Mm-hmm. I think they saw that these kind of flooding events were going to become more common, and they were like, okay, we're going to protect our own interests, and we're going to push that water back, you know, to elsewhere. Who cares? Who cares what it's going to learn? And I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of privatised um, protection from natural disasters, uh, kind of a gated community, like private flood walls kind of stuff. And it's very, um, it is very concerning, absolutely. But 
the Maravanong area has also had like lots and lots of inappropriate housing development right up on the floodplain, and that is the area that was most affected by flooding. So, and that was a bit upstream from the race course. There's housing development there that was um, required to kind of build like a constructed wetland um, in order to be allowed to build on the floodplain. My understanding is that. So that's the Edgewater development environment, mm-hmm. if anyone knows that. My understanding is that that wetland has proven to be not very effective at flood mitigation because it was over-engineered. Um, certainly, it wasn't particularly effective this time. So I think that there's, there's this real desire, I think, to kind of inten- make, like, intensify land use mm-hmm. and to kind of try to squish on, like, all of this flood mitigation stuff into a constructed wetland that's, like, extra deep or extra efficient somehow. But you kind of just can't do that. Yeah. So I think a lot of, yeah, the flooding is not... The flooding is not solely to do with the VRC. Yeah, I mean, like, I think something that people do fundamentally forget is that the way that Melbourne was sort of constructed in the early days of of colonisation in this area was also just about you know like pushing rivers underground um and yeah and so i like listeners might remember in 2020 i did an interview with um bridget chappelle about a, a work that they did called undertow which was really looking at mapping the the sort of underground river systems that like run through the city run under melbourne university uh you know there's there's this whole network of underground um, waterways that have sort of, um, you know, they have this potential to flood with increasingly frequent climate events. um, And there's no reason to be surprised in in a sense that that these things are happening. Um, But there is a lot of reason to, you know, scrutinize planning decisions and, um, you know, planning approvals around things like these these housing developments on the floodplain um and and the the flemington flood wall um so i also know that there is now there's now been a review announced into the the impacts of the flemington flood wall um and there have been some concerns around the independence of this review and i'm kind of wondering how this um how those concerns how the review itself ties into some of those broader issues around um around planning decisions and infrastructure um and you know water management in the city of melbourne uh, more broadly yeah totally so this is actually something that um me and my friend jing hai chan looked at in our local history podcast series on this group which we called underfoot so underfoot under i feel like everybody's all getting into the the underlying dynamics beautiful and yeah we looked at stuff like this the development of the west melbourne swamp into what is now dockland right so it was drained and spilled um the yarra the whole like um like lower course of the area was dredged, um, partly to prevent flooding. Um, and that was very, very destructive to local ecosystems. And one of the reasons for that and for similar development to the Maribyrnong um, was for industry, right? So that kind of um, puts Grey in there, the inner west, like a bit gentrified now, but historically was um, uh, an industrial suburb. And now it's kind of like, earmarked for intensive development. So it's been 
a state government policy to encourage development in the Footscray Maribyrnong area, um, the inner west. And that's meant um, often like going over the head of local governments. So when there was the, the flood was proposed in like a three or four, um, all of the local governments like adjoining this bit of the Lower Maribyrnong, so that's the city of Maribyrnong, the city of Melbourne proper and the city of Mini Ponds, all of which were massively affected by flooding, all of them protested about it. Um, and that was overridden by the state government. And they can get away with that kind of because of the history of these inner west suburbs as as Labor strongholds, particularly the city of Maribyrnong. Mm. Um, they're very taken for granted by the Labor government. It was a Labor government at the time. Um, and uh, it's, it just had no real political costs for them. Um, and uh, the um, review was very... I think what's interesting about it is I had a look at... I wasn't able to access the original um, review that approved, that said the flood wall was fine. No one's been able to access it. Um, I've had journos asking me, have you seen it? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, we haven't seen it. We asked Northern Water about it. But I've read some of the Northern Water policies incorporating that document, and there's not much of a distinction being made between different types of floods and flood water. Um, so there's... Most flood planning in Melbourne and around Melbourne is based around flush flooding, right? Mm -hmm. So flush flooding is generally, in urban areas, is generally due to runoff from hard surfaces, overwhelming the stormwater system, which, as you're saying, are in many cases former creeks or wetland systems that were kind of pushed underground or pushed into concrete channels that just don't have that kind of absorbent capacity. Um, and they become temporarily overwhelmed and back up um, quite frequently. All Melbourne flood planning is based around that pretty much. What's much rarer is this kind of riverine flooding, which is what we saw in Melbourne um, last week. So you've got, you know, heaps and heaps of rain in the catchment area of the Maribyrnong, so the Macedon Ranges. Um, similar story with the Werribee River. And that's been coming down very, very slowly over a large amount of time. And that's not been taken into account in really any of the flood modelling as far as I can tell, the difference between riverine flooding and, yeah, flash flooding. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is kind of, um, if you've been to, have you been to a very recently? Uh, not recently. Yeah, or in the last like, couple, if you've been any time in the last couple of years, you might have seen those. I've definitely uh, been in the last flats. couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen those flats down near the river? Yeah. Those enormous flats. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you've ever been at night, you'll see that very few of them are occupied. Only a very, very few of them mm -hmm. have their lights on. And I'm like, sure, maybe some of them are out partying, but it can't be all of them. They're 90% unoccupied. Um, that's because they've been very, very actively pushed and facilitated by state government planning schemes. Like, they kind of get to sidestep all of the local council planning commissions. And that's what exactly what happened with the VSC flood wall. Mm -hmm. Like... Um, the state government wants to encourage development of the inner west, and they are, in my opinion, are pretty much beholden to the interests of developers mm -hmm. and business lobbyists. Racing is a big industry, um, and it's got a powerful lobby group. Um, and I think at this point, it's kind of on the state government, it's on Melbourne Water, which is a you know quasi-independent body, to demonstrate that they weren't inappropriately influenced by those lobbyist influences. 
Um, because, yeah, there were three protests. There were two independent reviews, both of which said the proposed flood modelling was in, um, was inadequate in the Flemington flood wall proposal. Um, the data that they used for the to assess like the risk of flood was based was from 1986, which was hopelessly inadequate. Mm-hmm. Sure, in 2004, like they definitely had more recent data. I'm not clear on why they used data from 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like it's just really, it's not. It's really hard to justify, and whether or not that flood wall was a major contributor to flooding in the area. I think it was certainly a contributor to local flooding. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would have contributed to flooding upstream. It's possible. But we just don't know. Yeah. And it looks sus, and people are furious about it. No, totally. And, I mean, I think it does, um, you know, feed into this um, this much wider conversation, you know, whether or not the the flood wall as an individual piece of infrastructure um you know was ultimately the factor that that led to this kind of flooding obviously what you've said um leads you know to or sort of lends itself to a much more complex analysis of the way that um you know building decisions in a in a variety of different ways um and are sort of intersecting with the the more frequent impacts of, of climate change. And on that, I'm kind of also thinking about climate change mitigation and adaptation um, and, you know, how we're going to have to be implementing those into uh, urban planning, you know, uh, residential infrastructure design decisions. Um and also the way that this has kind of led to unequal impacts, because obviously people are furious about the the VRC Flemington flood wall because it has had such an obvious impact um, on uh, on communities that are already you know like marginalized and living in in those areas. And um, I'm wondering how this kind of also intersects with communities frequently left scrambling to sort things out after natural disasters. I mean, if you think about northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, folks are still homeless there. Yeah, and absolutely. I think the thing is, is like, even if the flood wall contributed nothing to the flooding, it's an ugly look to see, like, this incredibly wealthy organisation congratulating themselves on managing to protect managing to protect themselves and nobody else from floods. They're just like, not my business, don't care. Um, I think it's really interesting. If you have a look on some of the on like news.com.au or like any of those like kind of you know, corporate news sites, um, and see have a look at the comments on these stories, there's a, just a flood of these really kind of pro business like reactionary um, I was going to say reactionary boomers, and I was like, that's not fair. I don't know that they're boomers. Um, reactionary people being like, well, if I build a flood wall on my property, am I responsible for what happens to my neighbour? Like, they just respect, we're protecting their personal interests. Like, you know, it's what anyone would do. And I'm like, yeah, you, you are. We're responsible for what happens to our neighbours. Um, and that's what I find really alarming, this kind of idea that, yeah, we're not responsible for our neighbours, that we're not responsible for our community, that we're only responsible for ourselves and protecting ourselves. Because, of course, most people in the Flemington Kensington area can't afford to build a flood wall, like, um, and most people wouldn't get planning permission to build a flood wall. Um, but, yeah, as you're saying, there's, there's a large population of people in Flemington, like there's in Flemington Kensington, there's people who live in public housing flats, 
in that area, they wouldn't be like, why aren't they building a flood wall around the flats? Mm. Um, probably because it's not a good idea to build a flood wall in that area because it's just going to redirect it somewhere, somewhere mm-hmm. else. But some people don't care about that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, people need to, you know, it's it's not just a... It's, I mean, it, the, the disparity is just so stark, you know, who in terms of who uh, attends the races and, um, you know, who actually uses that track versus the people that are using the on the ground urban infrastructure of like walking, cycling, uh, driving, you know, to be able to sort of live in that area. And it's really some like parable of the sower kind of <laughs> I was actually just thinking of yeah parable of the sower um yeah like that which is you know obviously a story about climate change and in the near future with then gated communities mm-hmm. um yeah and I I was reading this article recently which is about um luxury apartments in London and London obviously has undergone not just gentrification but hyper gentrification so it's no longer just um being it's no longer just a case where the urban dynamic is being changed by the middle and upper middle class, but by the, the wealthy and the ultra-wealthy. So there's all of these, like, luxury basements being built in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, like, pool rooms, like, underground swimming pools, ballrooms, like, um, I heard of one that had an underground waterfall. What? Um, and all of those are, of course, massively contributing to flooding. Mm-hmm. In London, right? Because, like, not only it's not like it's like I've built a flood wall around all of the underground. Um, the ground just doesn't take in any water mm-hmm. in those areas, so it floods. Um, and but also, they're very secretive. It's there's a there's a kind of response to increasing inequality. Um, it is increasing privatization of, of land. Like, so, you know, if, you, if you're in an increasingly unequal society, people start to get a bit stroppy about above ground pools. So maybe you put it underground. Um, and then that putting it underground is something that you can do if you've got a lot of money. And it makes the society increasingly unequal just by doing it. Um, it it may, massively increases the risk of flooding to the many um, marginalised and uh, diverse and impoverished communities that do exist still in London. And I think we're going to see that in more and more places worldwide. This increasing privatisation and even secrecy of the of incredible luxury mm-hmm. at the expense of most people. Um, anyway, I'm not saying that the VRC has like an underground waterfall, but I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, like, we don't I, I we think, don't know either way whether they have a bunker with a waterfall in it. Um, well, I've never, I haven't been to the to the races in. I don't know if I've ever been to the races. I've been to the race course, but yeah, I haven't done a full like underground sonar mapping. I don't know. Maybe yeah. they've got a waterfall. It's not for the likes of us. What we're saying is VRC. Um, please let us know if you if you have a. It'll be important to to find out in this review. Um, All right. Lest I tread into dangerous territory, um, I also wanted to kind of round this out by thinking about the fact that it is Anti-Poverty Week this week. Oh, my God. Um, And I have... I I think I, I... 
I understand there was some reporting on the fact that some of the people that have been hit by the floods in in the West um, are not eligible for crisis payments. And I was wondering if you could kind of uh, maybe round this conversation out by speaking about, you know, these unequal effects of climate change and planning decisions when it also comes to massive wealth inequality in terms of uh, income support and social security. Yeah, well, it's a similar thing, actually, to what we saw in um, Sydney with the recent floods. So the city of Melbourne was not defined as a flood-fixed area, the local government area of the city of Melbourne, not Greater Metropolitan Melbourne. Um, It was the local government areas that were defined as flood-affected were, I think, city of Maribyrnong and maybe city of Mooney Valley. Um, But city of Melbourne was excluded from that, and that means that the people who are most likely to have been directly affected by the VSO flood wall, so people in Flemington and Kensington, the surrounding low-lying areas, uh, yeah, are not eligible for flood assistance. And that was, it was a similar thing in Sydney, right? So, like, city of Sydney, like, mm-hmm. inner, inner west areas and stuff were not defined as flood-affected, even though people were clearly flooded. And that kind of thing is a kind of bureaucratic violence, really, that most affects people who don't have private resources. So mm-hmm. people who are living from paycheck to paycheck or people who are living on the dole. And yeah, like if you don't have that kind of those kind of resources, you have no cushion. Like you can't replace your belongings that have been destroyed by flood water. Like you can't stay in a hotel while you sort out what's going on in your accommodation. Like you're screwed. Like mm-hmm. and uh, unless obviously many people are able to kind of lean on friends and family and stuff. Like I, I don't want to um, like kind of erase the really important work that people without a lot of resources are doing to keep their friends and family and communities afloat. Yeah. <laughs> but but it's hard. It's, it's really hard to prepare for a disaster when you have no cushion, when you have no uh, kind of margin of error. And that's the situation that more and more people in places like Australia that have formerly been mm. kind of wealthier but more and more experiencing extreme inequality are... That's the kind of situation that many, many people are dealing with. It's just, yeah, maybe there's an evacuation order. Where are you going to go? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, yeah, looking looking at the the way that the flood effects have have sort of dragged out across the year, um, you know, in sort of the northern northern parts of the east coast of Australia, I think is yeah, it's it's devastating, and it is such a like a horrible testament of things to come if we don't see change. So uh, election coming up, everybody, um, you know, stay tuned and uh, use use your vote wisely if you choose to vote. Um, um, yeah, and yeah. don't rely on your vote because as we've in places like um, Maribyrnong and Flemington, um, it's, especially in places like Maribyrnong, mm-hmm. your vote often literally will change nothing. Like, Absolutely that, true. In terms of that state election. So in places that are traditional working class areas, uh, even if they're not becoming gentrified, we've got to look beyond the ballot box mm-hmm. because the Labor Party really take our communities for granted and mm-hmm. take our support for granted. And electorally, they've historically been correct to do so on a, you know, a, a cynical strategic level. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what 3CR's for, of course. Yeah. Well, we're here to, to say, um, you know, the election's coming up. Maybe talk to your neighbours. Yeah, and support your local wetland. Yeah. Um, look, Liz, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has been an excellent conversation. A bit of a bit of a windy um, 
and complex one, but, you know, a lot like the river systems that we've pushed uh, under the city of Melbourne, definitely not something that can be kept down for long. So uh, thank you so much for chatting with us this morning. All right. Have a great morning, everyone, and stop rats. Take care. That was Footscray local historian Liz Crash. She spoke with us about urban planning and the unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events, which left homes and suburbs, including Maribyrnong and Flemington, inundated while the Flemington racetrack stayed conspicuously dry. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Thank you so much to Priya from Thursday Breakfast for that report there. We'll be back with uh, our interview with Kristen Lee right after this message. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Welcome back to 3CR um, Tuesday Breakfast. We are now joined by Kristen Lee from the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses, who is on the show today to discuss the perils of horse racing and saying up to the cup. Welcome to 3CR, Kristen. Good morning. How are you going? Yeah, really well, thank you. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm sure it's going to be quite a busy one for you. Um, just wanted to first look at the ways in which uh, society's attitude towards horse racing is potentially changing. Um, There have been a couple of reports that have been uh, published recently about the decline in attendance um, and naming factors such as, of course, animal cruelty, gambling concerns, um, the increased domestic violence that occurs around events like this, and now the flood war controversy that we just heard about. I was wondering um, what your reflections were when it comes to people's attitudes towards the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, I mean, we've certainly seen, since we've been campaigning against horse racing since 2008, a very steady um, rather consistent decline, um, specifically in attendance and also an, uh, a lovely consistent increase in support for our campaigning, including our Nut to the Cup campaign. And uh, I think that uh, the factors that you've mentioned are certainly all contributing. Uh, the animal cruelty is where we focus um, our educating the public on mostly um, but the gambling issue is obviously huge as well with the domestic violence and now the flood war, which is a perfect example of, you know, disparity and the power of those with huge influence over government and lots of money, which is just a... I think that was a real... Um, that event was a, a real... Uh, really symbolic of this whole thing, really, of power over those that, um, you know, that, that, that have much less, including the animals. So it's sort of like that behaviour is against humans as well as animals, if um, 
if you look at it as a, as a whole, the industry. It's not about like with gambling addiction and with um, the flood wall and with the animal cruelty. It's about just taking advantage of the more vulnerable and putting greed before anything else. Really, we've seen a decline in attendance of since pre-COVID numbers, about ten percent over the carnival. And we've seen a decline since we started campaigning 12 years ago of, um, uh, since Up to the Cup, which started in 2010, we've seen a decline of 30% in attendance figures. So um, that's, I think, proof that people are, you know, turning their back on this industry for various reasons and, and I think very much specifically the animal cruelty issues. Yeah, you were saying that this campaign's been running for twelve years. In your in your experience um, with the coalition, just talking to everyday people about this issue, uh, what have been some of their reactions, or or how have people's reactions um, to horse racing changed over the course of this decade? Oh, it's been huge. So we've you know at the start we were just you know crazy the crazy animal rights activists. Um, that that just um, you know were were really you know our first night to the cup for example was about was about ten or twenty people sitting in the park looking for an alternative to all the parties that they didn't want to attend and now we've got like big businesses and you know small businesses and um, individuals and organisations all jumping on board, um, running up to the cup events across the country. A lot of those businesses obviously have to be careful and they don't they don't promote them, but they're in-house like workplace boycotts and things like that. And they know, although we don't help promote those for them because they're workplace events, they will let us know. So that, that's, you know, encouraging for us. And they're very proud of that. And they will say, this year we're not watching the cup. Instead, we're having activities at work and we're having a luncheon and we're all going to give you the funds that we raise from that and, and um, things like that are happening. So there's that huge shift that we've seen. And I think particularly I noticed it the most in 2018 when the Cliffs of Moore died in the cup um, from a, I believe it was a shoulder injury, um, pretty much right in front of the cup crowd. And that's when we'd already had quite a few cup deaths in a row um, but, but by the time that death happened, there was just a real shift in the media and the public discussion on, on this event and horse racing in general. And um, the kind of the, me- the media headlines started changing from, you know, bragging about what a great event it is to really questioning if it was at all justified in the name of gambling profits and entertainment to be harming and killing these animals. Yeah, and... and- you know, we've also seen within government, um, you know, we've got Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's been a very outspoken um, uh, spokesperson for, for this particular issue. Um, she's, you know, the spokesperson on animal welfare and is speaking, I believe, at an event, at an up to the cup event um, today. Uh, so, you know, like you said, on, on multiple levels, you've got people um, bringing light to this issue and making it more and more, uh, I guess, normalising the, the discussion around animal cruelty. Yeah, definitely. Um, politicians willing to speak out against it now um, and feeling very comfortable doing that and supported in doing that. And obviously you've got the Greens and the Animal Justice Party and some of the other smaller parties um, that are willing to do that. But then you've got the other side, which is, you know, the, the bigger parties and how Labor at the moment is, you know, putting out reports of, you know, how much and how great 
this industry contributes to our economy and and there's that kind of like fight to come back which which you know is 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 despicable but at the same time i guess is a sign that they're trying to justify this they're trying to say to the public look we you know this is a great industry for us and we all need to be behind it because it gives us however for many billion dollars mm-hmm. so you know it's it's like the you know, we like to see it as the fight before the win, um, which we know we're still a long way off. But they're they're feeling the need to have to justify this to people now. Their support of it, um, which yeah, is is interesting um, for them to go to that effort and to put out these reports to um, to try to keep people on side. And as our position has and always will be, is that you know, no amount of money will will um, ever justify human and animal suffering. No, and it's it's a it's a running theme, I think, for for people who are trying to uh, defend something that exploits uh, people and also animals is is to point to the economic benefits. Um, yeah. Speaking of reports, uh, you published your own report um, called the Death Watch twenty twenty two report, looking into uh, the data around. Um, horses who have died in racing uh, from August 2021 to uh, the end of July 2022. Can you talk us through some of the key findings in this report? Yeah, so we found that in that racing year, um, 139 horses died on the racetrack from racing-related injuries, and they go from, uh, you know, front to rear limb injuries of all different types to uh, heart attacks to bleeding from the lungs um, pelvic fractures, shoulder fractures, um, all sorts of sort of horrific injuries that they suffer from being pushed so hard and so often. Um, so that 139 deaths equates to one horse dying on Australian racetracks every 2.5 days. Now, these are just the... It's really important people remember, these are just the horses that we hear about because they report them in their stewards' reports if they die on the track. But if the horse is taken from the track injured and then killed behind the scenes, they don't report that. So the actual numbers of deaths from uh, racing-related injuries are significantly higher than that. Um, And sometimes we might just happen to hear about them through a media report um, or we'll track an injured horse and then find that they've... they've, um, uh, then we'll call some trainers and get some information. So, you know, we're really... We know that the numbers are much higher. There's also... Um, trials and training injuries that happen that you very rarely hear about because they don't have to be reported on either, which is why we're calling for mandatory reporting of all horse deaths from racing injuries. Um, We've been doing that with the government for a couple of years now and they're refusing to budge. They need to... The industry isn't going to do it themselves, so the government... We think people have a right to know what the impacts of this industry are and all we're asking is for the government to actually make it mandatory for the industry to report that and they're not. So... um, and then, of course, there's the thousands that are killed when they're no longer profitable, which is sort of outside of the Death Watch report, but still very relevant because you've got 13,000 foals being born into this industry each year, but the industry doesn't grow in size. So you've got to ask where the 13,000 that are exiting the industry are going, and they will tell you um, token stories about a horse that has this magnificent afterlife, and there's like a handful of them that they'll talk about, and they behave as though that represents 
the 13,000 that are that are going missing almost. So our uh, estimations and the research we've done with slaughterhouse investigations and knackery investigations say that at least 10,000 horses are being um, killed when they're no longer wanted for racing. And we've got to remember as well that the racing... Um, the average time a horse is used in racing is less than three years, and they have a lifespan of you know 25 even to 30 years if they're if they're well looked after. So you, you've got people investing in horses as a commodity, and when that commodity can't make you or stops making you money, they're not going to spend the next 25 years paying to look after them, which is a quite an expensive. Um, you know, pursuits, if anyone who looks after a horse would understand. So um, the the figures just don't add up. The, the whole um, idea of the industry is the gambling and entertainment profit-making industry um, doesn't include what to do with the horse when they're not doing what they were bred to do. So, um, yeah, the, we've also got some important case studies in that report. If people want to look at horseracingkills.com death watch report for 2022, we've been doing that report for quite a few years now, and you'll see that the deaths on track that are reported are quite consistent number-wise. Um, we haven't seen any improvements. The industry will tell you there's improvements, but that's because they're putting in uh, measures now for important races like, you know, the, the Melbourne Cup, which the media focuses on, and a couple of the other big ones. But for the rest of the races, they're not getting vet checks and CT scans and all the things they're incorporating now because they only care about the PR. They don't care about the horses themselves. If they did, all of those vet checks, well, racing wouldn't exist if they really did. But, you know, if they wanted to avoid the deaths on track, they'd be doing those checks at every single race, not just a handful that the media is looking at. And our report also found that last Melbourne Cup, even though there wasn't a death at Flemington, Four horses were killed on Melbourne Cup Day at other tracks in Australia, but no one spoke about them because it wasn't at Flemington on on in the Cup. It was it was on Melbourne Cup Day. We had one in South Australia, we had one in the Northern Territory, and two in New South Wales, but no one spoke about them. Yeah, there's something very insidious about uh, the emission of of these deaths of of race horses. And going back to your earlier point, if you know, the the government and also the industry is going to talk about openly about the economic benefits of the in of the horse racing industry, then, you know, they should also be equally as open about the consequences um, and what is actually happening to these horses um, and being able to present the public with with um, with as much information as possible because, like you said, people deserve to know what is happening both at the Melbourne Cup but also at other um, track events as well. Absolutely. And it's a perfect example of how they'll, they'll splash about how great, how great the improvements are there and just, and just ignore the rest. And um, kind of it's a real disrespect to, to the public to try to, to just think that people, like people are just going to be that gullible and unfortunately because they have so much money, um, people do believe the spin, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people are becoming a lot smarter than that. And obviously with the avenues of more open media, as far as unpaid media goes now, we can we can reach those people and get the truth out there, which is really helpful. But that is really, yeah, what they should be doing. That's what... That's, that's what um, fair reporting would be um, from our government to, to discuss that, but they're, they're just defending it. I think it's interesting to also note that the industry um, have refused to even acknowledge that horses are sent to slaughter all these years that we've been, been campaigning, and it took until they would say a percentage like 0.5% or something ludicrous. Um, they would acknowledge before our um, big expose 
in uh, on the final race, um, called the final race on the ABC a few years ago about the Merrimah Slaughterhouse in Queensland, which showed how many horses were going to slaughter there from all around the country. And that sort of, you know, helped shift everyone's, um, a lot of people's opinion as well on that. And the industry since then have gone, okay, we acknowledge we've got a problem, but it took us doing that and that full investigation for them to even acknowledge it um, when they've known the whole time, but they pretended they had no idea. So now Racing Victoria has put in place what they call an on-site euthanasia program. So it's their way of basically killing the horses on the farm before they can end up at the slaughterhouse or knackery, which is where we will find them and expose it. So they're actually literally offering to come and kill the horse, pull the trainer and take the body away mm. so that that can't be exposed. Right. Um, yeah, which is just, a, it's on their website and people can look it up, the on-site euthanasia program. Yeah, and it's, 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 you know. it's, 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 it's so awful. Um, unfortunately, sorry, Kristen, to cut you off, but unfortunately that's all we have time for today. Um, it, there's so much that we can talk about in terms of the 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 perils of horse racing and how horses are affected each year. So I do encourage people to go on their website, to go on your website, horseracingkills.com. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Kristen, and thank you for your important work here. Thank you. Thank you so much. And please come to the park at Flemington and join our Nuts to the Cup party. We'll be here all day. We'd love to see everyone. Great. Thanks so much. That was uh, Kristen Lee from the Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses speaking to us about the dangers of horse racing. Uh, we will be back right after this. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. We're going to play another song for you now. This is by Bic Runga and it's called Sway. Uh-huh. 
Our logic has been torn apart And now it all turns sour Come sweets in the every afternoon was uh, part of the song it was Sway by Bik Ranga. We are now joined by Kay Wenigal, uh, who 3CR listeners may know from the Beyond Zero program, uh, which looked at the science and solutions to climate change. Kay is on the show today to talk to us about a community initiative to make electric vehicles more affordable through a bulk buying arrangement in the northern suburbs of Nam, Melbourne. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Kay. Thanks very much for having me. So could you tell us more about the idea behind this initiative to, to bulk buy EVs and how it came about? Yes, well, it, there was a company, an organisation called the Good Car Company, which started a number of years ago trying to bring in second-hand and cheaper electric vehicles into Australia because there were, most people can't afford a new electric car at the moment. They're very expensive. And so they sourced really good quality cars from overseas and brought them into Australia and um, and still are doing this. And people are it's available for people to come in and join um, the bulk buy and get a cheap car as they do it. So the good car company is a social enterprise and Michael Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian just recently funded them over $10 million because he said there was nothing like it here in Australia. And it's a really good initiative given that there are no other organisations that are really seeding the second-hand electric car market. Yeah, so they are um, at the moment very expensive and out of reach for so many people. For example, it's around $20,000 for a... The, around the lowest startup price for a second-hand electric vehicle and new ones uh, cost $45,000. Um, it seems that, you know, uh, as we're talking about the car the car industry and, and petrol and things like that, um, it seems like if people do really want to make this change for themselves and for the community, that it's quite hard to do so. It is extremely difficult. I mean, I, I've had an electric car for seven years, but, um, you know, I bought mine as a demo model. It was terribly expensive. But the thing I found was that the cost since I bought it is virtually nothing. You know, it's cost me $600 in the last seven years, over, over that seven-year period, to service my car. So the maintenance is virtually nothing. And then, of course, the costs to charge the car are much, much lower than they would be for a petrol car. Right. So, for example, I my old petrol car used to cost me at least $75 to fill up and my electric car cost me $4. So, you know, even if I quadrupled that and said, well, it cost me $20, $25, that's still a significant saving on what um, I was paying for an, a petrol car. Yeah, so if... You know, once you are able to acquire one of these vehicles, then you really see a decrease in cost. But yeah, I guess the the difficult thing is being able to have enough funds to purchase one in the first place. Um, 
I just wanted to look at the the models of, of electric vehicles. It seems that there is an increasing number of electric vehicle models in other countries, but not as many available here in Australia. Uh, when we're looking at this particular scheme, what models does this involve exactly? Well, there are a number of different models that are available and the Nissan Leaf is a very popular car and that's a number of different models of the Nissan Leaf. So ones with uh, that are older with a, longer, a shorter battery, a smaller battery and a shorter range um, going up to the current one, which has got a, a longer battery, a bigger battery and a longer range. Then there's also um, the Nissan Van, the um, NV200, the electric van. There's a Peugeot van. There is a Polestar. So there are a number of different cars that are available and they're not just second-hand cars. They're also new cars. Yeah, because sometimes buying a second-hand car can be fraught with danger. Can you talk us through any warranty or um, is there any guarantee with this buy-in? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. And look, to to um, really try and clarify that, I think if people are interested in um, getting into this bulk buy opportunity, if they register on the goodcar.co forward slash Darabin website, then they get sent all this information and all those questions are answered. There's a, a month-long um, campaign where you can ask as many questions as you like. You can do all the test drives. You can go to the Show and Shine event, which is on this Sunday at Bundura Secondary College from 10 to 2 p.m. And you'll meet people that have these cars. You can ask them questions. You can talk to the people at the Good Car Company and they'll do a presentation as well. And all those things combined give you that peace of mind that you're actually getting the support and the knowledge and the warranty that, that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. For instance, a good car company goes has people overseas that actually look at every single vehicle they purchase and make sure that it, the battery health is very good, make sure the car is in good physical and um, condition. Everything has is checked out before the car's bought on behalf of someone and then brought to Australia. And then once it's in Australia, the warranty is dependent on the age of the car um, and, and the state of the car. So, you know, if it was a, an older car, the warranty is shorter. If it's a newer car, it's a longer warranty. There's also a, a seven-day return warranty. So if you don't like the car, you can always return it within seven days. And then there's support after you've bought the car. So they really make sure that they're looking after everybody as best they possibly can. Yeah, it sounds like a very involved process. Um, do you know, Kay, do you know of any other bulk buys that have uh, occurred either in Australia or anywhere else in the world and um, whether or not they've been a success? Ah, yeah, okay. So I don't know of any overseas, but um, this is an, a totally new initiative in Australia. The good car company is the only one doing it. And they've done it in a number of other areas, Byron, Lismore area, Geelong has actually had one, Randwick's currently got one. So there have been quite a number that they've already done and they've been hugely successful. They've been totally um, overbooked, if you can think that it could be overbooked. Um, yes, they've been extraordinarily popular because I know from taking my car from to a number of um, electric vehicle festivals, people really, really, really want an electric car and this is the way that they can get into the market. 
so that, you know, by getting these second-hand car cars or, or new ones at a really good price, you are able to actually then see that second-hand market once you turn it over and go and get your, your next car, which is really what governments should be doing. And the reason that we're at this point where electric vehicles are still so expensive is because the federal government has done nothing to support the electric car or electric vehicle industry, for that matter, um, up until now. Yeah, you're right. Um, so you were saying just now that if you know if people want to get involved, they can look at the Good Car Company website, um, but there's also an event happening at Bundura Secondary College uh, later this week. Is that correct? Can you just tell us a bit more about this event? Yes, that's right. Um, this Sunday, coming Sunday, November the 6th, at Bundura Secondary College, there is what they call a show and shine event where people will have their cars that they've bought from the Good Car Company and demonstrating them, talking to people about them, maybe giving them test drives in them. And as well as that, the Good Car Company will have its vehicles there also. And a number of people from the Good Car Company will be there too to answer any of your questions. And they'll also be doing a presentation. So it's going to be a really fun day, lots of music, food, drink, good car conversations. (laughs) And uh, I think the weather's ever going to hold up. Oh, uh, fingers crossed. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much, Kay, uh, for joining us this morning to tell us more about this community uh, initiative to make electric vehicles more affordable. Uh, We'll pop some details about the event in our show notes so people can check it out. Uh, That's great. Thanks, Fung. And it's just thegoodcar.co forward slash Darabin if people are looking for more information. Thanks, Kay. Thank you very much. That was Kay Winnegal from the Darabin Climate Active uh, Action Now uh, speaking to us about the community initiative in the northern suburbs of Nam Melbourne uh, to try and make electric vehicles more affordable through a bulk buying arrangement. Um, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today's show. Time went by so quickly. So just to wrap up, uh, we started this morning's show by replaying excerpts from the a decarceration forum called Women's Lived Experience in Decarceration and Carceral Resistance. Uh, we heard from both panels, um, so from people providing services but also women with lived experience. We then uh, heard from Liz Crash, local historian who spoke with Priya from Thursday Breakfast about urban planning and the flood wall that was built to protect the Flemington race course, which then we saw... Um, a few weeks ago, divert floodwaters towards homes in the north um, northwestern suburbs of Nam Melbourne. We spoke with uh, Kristen about the perils of race- racehorsing and now just heard from Kay. Uh, tune in to Accent of Women up next and we'll see you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.